Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, we are here at reInvent in Las Vegas, and I am with Dave Castillo. Dave is the Managing Vice President for Machine Learning at Capital One. Dave, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Oh, thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. Let's just jump right in and talk a little bit about your background. Tell us uh, about your work in the machine learning field. Absolutely. So I'm uh, actually very fortunate. I got to start machine learning way back when, when it was still handcrafted knowledge. And we were really focused on knowledge representation. So I started out in the NASA days. I did a lot of work for NASA. And it was about, you know, solving uh, problems that were that were very theoretical, but uh, never really saw the light of day in a production setting. And Which I want, NASA? Uh, it was, it was Na- actually, I worked with all the NASA bureaus, but uh, okay. I was stationed actually in Florida, NASA, at the Kennedy Space Center, Johnson Space Center, and uh, J- JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab. So I worked with all those three. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We did robotic vision systems, which are obviously a whole different technology set back then than, than convolutional neural nets have uh, sort of you know, annihilated all of that work uh, yeah. and <laughs> put a lot of people out of work uh, in the process. But um, started with started there and uh, really um, watched the transition go from knowledge representation into statistical learning, into machine learning, into uh, deep learning and then explainability on top of that. And, and then uh, more recently, you know, just really uh, looking into how do we do um, large scale graph related machine learning with graph machine learning. So um, I've had this very diverse career. I've had two startups, um, wound up in the media industry as a CTO of an advertising company in New York City for several years. And I left uh, that in 2015 and joined banking uh, with a company called Early Warning, most popular for Zelle, uh, the mm-hmm. faster payment system. And I ran machine learning there, the innovation labs, and their data transformation. That company is owned by the seven largest banks in the U.S., including Capital One. That's how I got familiar with Capital One. Okay. And I started here last June in okay. 2019. 20, uh, 2018, sorry. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so what's your role at Capital One? I run uh, what's called the Center for Machine Learning. And... Um, uh, it's a it's a fairly large organization. It's a 200 plus people uh, mm-hmm. focused on a center of excellence, and I can get into a little bit more of what that means later if you like. Yeah, I spoke to Adam Wenchel on the podcast about a year and a half ago, uh, and he went off to do a startup. I think now uh, is that the same? Are you in the same role? I'm in the same role, absolutely. Uh, actually, I met Adam, and I thank Adam for the incredible job he did in amassing. Uh, great talent to sort of incubate the Center for Machine Learning. And Adam had to start in a place where he was really the skill set and the expertise around machine learning. And so the machine learning opportunities and and solutions all came in and fanned into, into Adam's organization. And uh, that's no longer the case now. We've been able to transform that where we can scale it. And we've federated a lot of uh, capability out. So um, our model is more of a model of enablement now. Mm-hmm. Where we actually join teams, we provide skill sets, technology, platforms, tools, education, boot camps, basically just trying to empower the other teams to be self-sufficient. And we stay with them for a period of time and then we extract ourselves. Yeah, one of the, the things that I'm seeing 
all over the enterprise landscape that's happening right now is this kind of transition from doing machine learning in kind of a lab type of environment, um, doing a lot of experimentation to, uh, and alongside that, you know, selling it across the enterprise. And now it seems like everyone's bought in, everyone wants to figure out how to do it, how to build models, get their pet model into production. uh, And it's causing shifts in the way organizations are organizing it to support that. It sounds like you're going through a similar transition. Yeah. So 18 months ago, we had uh, we had a lot of side of desks bespoke initiatives mm-hmm. where people were creating their own solutions. They were very narrow, solved very narrow use cases, and they had to go through all the pain associated with getting something from a proof of concept into whether it be a challenger model or ultimately into production. And what's happened since then is that we've become highly collaborative because we understand the challenges associated with getting a machine learning into production in a well-managed, compliant way. And that's not an easy task, especially when you have a material model, um, a model that's under regulatory scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And even our immaterial models, which are not so heavily scrutinized, but still require you know, a well-managed uh, discipline about them. Anyway, there was a sentiment about how do we actually learn, take all these learnings and, and come together as an enterprise and leverage, each, leverage what each other has done and throw away some of these, you know, side of desk solutions that don't scale and really look toward more of an enterprise offering. And we've done a lot of work in that area. So now uh, we have collaboration. Center for Machine Learning collaborates with all the lines of business. We're driving a, a enterprise, what we call the enterprise machine learning ecosystem now. Mm-hmm. It's driven by myself and another, another guy named Annie Gupta, who's in our card business. And underneath that initiative, we have a, our feature platform, our machine learning platform, and our, mod- our monitoring platform, all really looking at how do you go from inception to deployment and then keep the 360 moving through monitoring and refit and, and, uh, and retraining. So there's been a huge sort of awakening that has happened in Capital One. It's really mm-hmm. exciting to see what, see everyone coming together you know, it's not so territorial anymore. It's really how do we help each other actually get to the finish line? Awesome. Awesome. Before we dig into a little bit of the platform that you've built, can we talk a little bit about the use cases? Um, I you know, have spoken to folks at Capital One that are doing things like uh, like fraud and AML. And there are you know, a bunch of things that are kind of obvious ones for a financial services company. Yeah, maybe we can talk about, you know, the the broad landscape, but I'm also curious if you can share any ones that are, you know, uh, maybe less obvious or more interesting or that you're personally excited about. Within Capital One, we are looking at applying machine learning at every across every facet of our business. And we've done some very, very cool and interesting things that you wouldn't be you wouldn't think that would be associated with a bank. So, for example, when you join Capital One, you get assigned access privileges to data and to systems. That's all done by machine learning today. and Meaning that, as an employee? As an employee. Huh. When, when you join, uh, and, and that's something that we built. Uh, so that's in production, and it's, uh, it's actually uh, compressed the time for associates to get up to speed and actually be productive because they've had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to get access to certain data, to certain systems, you know, and, um, and now it's all assigned based on these algorithms. That's kind of cool. We have space allocation that happens when we, we look at how badges are navigating through our buildings and we can look at how to plan space for people. 
And, um, and that, that's an interesting application of machine learning. We did one last year where we're assigning our first, our first year associates, they, they go on a rotation. So the next job is an assignment that's actually uh, a recommendation engine that's actually made by a machine learning algorithm for that job assignment. That was all done manually on a huge spreadsheet. It was very painful for people to, to mm-hmm. do that across the board. That's all, that's all automated. And we're doing, you know, what, what I used to do in the, in the uh, ad, ad tech industry, we're doing AdWord bidding with multi-arm bandits. Uh, we're doing creative and personalization, uh, aspiring toward getting granular and personalization with multi-arm bandits. So a little bit of, you know, tiny bit of reinforcement learning. Um, so those are, those are sort of not typical of making, yeah, yeah. you know, but they're, I think it's a testimony of, of the, you know, we're serious about, uh, where we want to apply this technology and, and there's a plethora of other, uh, examples I could give you on document reading, reading documents from uh, our vendors and extracting, you know, uh, salient information out of those documents, et cetera. The thing that jumped out to me about a couple of those examples, the space planning and the employee example, the onboarding example is that, you know, the, the, the functions that own those processes are HR and facilities, probably not right. necessarily the most, you know, technology forward or, you know, AI enabled organizations. So how do, do they come to you with those opportunities and ideas, or is this part of the COE process where you're already embedded with them? How does the, the ideation process work there? Yeah, it was it was really an, uh, an outward reach on our part, and then once we started to educate on, as to what was possible, then dialogue started happening within the, the, these uh, non technical organizations, and and then something was born out of that. So yeah, it was an outreach. We have it. We started up a, a year ago. We started up what we call Advanced ML within the Center for Machine Learning. This is a new group that is focused on three things. One is we had to get better about managing our university research partnerships. Uh, and we can talk about that a little bit later. The second item was we wanted to initiate an advocacy advocacy function where we could talk to our lines of businesses about what we were doing and how we might look at doing their jobs a little bit differently with machine learning, not necessarily automating the tasks that they're doing, but thinking about their jobs differently. Mm. The third component of, of that was really focused on, on uh, getting a collaboration across Capital One on what were the challenges that were, what are the challenges that we're all facing when it comes to machine learning, whether it, it is at the beginning of the machine learning life cycle or at the end, you know, let's identify what those challenges are. And then let, let's look at trying to come, come together as an organization rather than as individual fiefdoms uh, to solve them. Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, when thinking about the types of examples that you gave that, you know, there are so there have to be so many examples like that. Um, But there are also, you know, these kind of very high value, you know, core to financial services types of use cases that, you know, I guess I'm I'm trying to, to formulate a question around how do you prioritize when you've got, you know, this broad, you know, portfolio of opportunities, you know, some of which are kind of core to the business and, you know, drive, uh, you know, revenue and profitability and others are, you know, supporting organizations that, you know, um, you know, aren't necessarily central to that conversation or aren't, are, are not often central to that conversation. Again, the HR facilities, that kind of thing. Right. 
this, this group that I mentioned earlier, the advocacy group, is uh, really was meant to bring all these people together. And, uh, and then uh, what that group also does is it opines on, on what are the higher priority areas that we should be focused on. And there's a lot of discussion. Uh, the, group, the group got very large. It got to like 35 people across the company. And so we actually split it up into a, sort of a hierarchy of groups. But the idea is, is that there's, there are high priority opportunities for us that we definitely have to be plugged into. But there is also enough bandwidth uh, with this new enablement model that you know, we can actually address some of these non-high priority use cases just to really allow us to get some bedrock out there in terms of proliferating and democratizing ML. But certainly the high priority items get discussed and they are triaged. And uh, you know, it's no longer someone in the, in the Center for Machine Learning saying, I think this is the highest priority. Mm-hmm. This is coming from the business now. And that, that's a flip on, mm-hmm. on how we operated a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like kind of putting some of the pieces together, transitioning the model to one where you don't necessarily own the development of the, you know, the model and getting it into production, but you're supporting the business as well as the you know, platform and infrastructure pieces that you mentioned have created a, a you know, velocity or acceleration or efficiency to being able to work on these projects that allows you to get, you know, more done in more areas. Right. So, uh, there are, most of the models are owned by the, by the, u- the owners of the use cases of so the lines of business, if you will, or even our tech partners, cause we, we often partner with our tech partners for anomaly detection, let's say. Uh, so they own those use cases and they will own typically own those models. There are some models that we own as well. And, okay. and that we take, uh, you know, that, that we'll start and take in, into production but what we're trying to do really is to empower others to be is to uh, to be self sufficient and to be able to leverage these best practices, leverage the tools and tech that that either are emerging or have been built, you know, so that we can do things in a very consistent, well managed, and again compliant way. So we we talked a little bit about the the platform components. Can you review those again? It was features and then model development and then monitoring? Yeah, so the platform ecosystem is comprised of three initiatives. One is our feature platform. The other is our what we call our ML core, machine learning core platform and monitoring platform. And I can go into, into a little bit of what each of these components actually mean. So feature platform is, as you can imagine, in a company as big as, as Capital One, I might create a feature. There might be a data scientist in Card who creates the same feature, and someone maybe in Small Business Card who creates yet another feature, uh-huh. and then they all do the same thing. And then we build the same engines. Maybe we build them with different tech, but they all compute the same values. And so what we what we've uh, done now is is that we're at an interesting point where we can begin to leverage our data tra- our data and our tech transformation. So that means that we can get access to a broader range of uh, raw data. We can take advantage of lineage. We can take advantage of capabilities that weren't there before, and they're and they're starting to emerge now. In order to be able to scale that, we want to be able to register these features to say, "Hey, I'm going to build a feature. I'm going to put it into this registry. I'm going to I'm going to introduce governance around it. This is the use case that I'm solving for it, and here here is an engine that actually calculates that particular feature, and it's available for people to actually utilize." And get some, you know, get some economies of scale around. And so now someone else can utilize that feature as long as, you know, it's an applicable use case. 
and they won't have to reinvent the wheel. We can reduce that duplication of effort. Again, going toward that well-managed uh, initiative that we have, it's already been through governance. And we can also keep track of that, what models that feature is actually being used in. So we know that that feature is being used in two or three models out there. We know that what the data patterns look like to feed those models. And so um, the feature ecosystem is something that is necessary really to, to democratize and scale machine learning within Capital One. It's also the, the, the inputs into the machine learning process, the, uh, the training process itself. So as you train models, you're going to bring from this feature platform the features that you want to use to train your model. You may actually contribute back features when you, you know, you're, in the, you're in the training process and you're thinking, hey, I can take this feature and this feature and create this third feature. I want to put this back into the uh, feature platform and make it available. And so it, it's a feeder and it feeds the, the machine learning platform. Now, in Capital One, we had several of these platforms all over the place. I can only and, imagine. <laughs> and so we've, we've decided as an organization, we're not going to shut any of those down today, but we are going to build our own platform in the sense that our own platform is going to be built with, with the eye toward the AI and ML industry and the pace that that industry is moving. And so what I mean by that is that we're not going to build a monolithic platform that is going to be obsolete by the time we field it. We're going to build a platform that allows us to leverage the innovation that's happening in this ecosystem. It's an innovation that's happening at a pace we've not seen before. Even mobile wasn't this fast. And so we have to be able to provide the APIs and the hooks to take advantage of either AWS-related capabilities or all the entire ecosystem that has formed around that, um, that uh, you know, that ecosystem, uh, the AWS capabilities. And so having that, that opportunity to say build versus buy, yeah, this, this is the kind of stuff we want to put in our platform that we want to own. It's proprietary and we, want, we feel it has a competitive advantage, but here's some infrastructure pieces that we don't really have to mess with anymore because we can, they're essentially commodity. So now our platform has that in mind. It's being built with that in mind to be able to leverage the innovation in the industry. But the platform will cover training, execute, uh, deployment, execution. So it's the, it's the I'm going to build, I'm going to train, I'm going to deploy, I'm going to execute. Uh, those four phases are in what's called the ML core platform. And, um, and that's underway and that's an enterprise initiative. And that's interesting because it's brought together several lines of business and some tech partners. And, uh, really it's the first time that we've, we've all come together to solve that problem. And then there's monitoring. Obviously when you put the model out in, in, uh, production, uh, you're going to have to look for drift. You're going to have to understand when it's time to refit and retrain. So there's a monitoring component, um, a platform that allows us to to uh, then instrument and and uh, determine whether or not we have to do these refits on our models. And that's yet a third platform. And again, that platform is also being built to take advantage of innovation that's happening there. We just heard about some of that innovation here at reInvent. You mentioned that you had many platforms uh, in existence and that will continue to exist. What are um, some of those? So within our banking industry, for example, our banking line of business, we have a, a platform that has been built around fraud and, and anti-money laundering and faster payments and account takeover. And, uh, and so there has been sort of a soup to nuts 
proprietary implementation. And there's been some good tech that has come out of that. Likewise, in card, very same thing. We have a, another system and we have, we have a few of them, actually, several of them. And some of them are, you know, some of them are highly specialized for sub millisecond uh, uh, kinds of performance and others are second, uh, having a latency of seconds is, 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 uh, is okay. So that technology that has been built in all these different lines of business, we've taken representatives and actually the creators of that technology, we've brought them together. And so what we're doing is we're, is we're taking the best of what we know and what we've experienced firsthand. And we're creating this new approach, uh, for our, our platform. Now, we also have to figure out how do we on-ramp and deprecate those other platforms and what is the time to do that? And that's a, you know, that's a problem that uh, we're going to be facing in, in 20, as early as 2020 for some of these platforms. Um, and it will probably go on even beyond that. So you know, having the proper on-ramps for being able to deprecate some of these bespoke, uh, very narrow platforms onto this more enterprise platform is something that uh, we're working on. And, and uh, the interesting thing about it is, is that there is a first-class product management function that has been spun up around this mm-hmm. that didn't exist a year and a half ago. And okay. it's, really, it's really made a huge difference in, uh, in the kinds of machine learning uh, artifacts that are getting produced. And, and also, it's put a huge dent in the, in the duplication of effort. Mm-hmm. Is, that ro- is that a new type of role uh, for this particular project or at Capital One in general? I would say both. Uh, it's it's a it's a role that uh, at the tech level it it's actually been there for a while. So it was, okay. it was part of the data transformation, but within the machine learning sector, it's brand it's it's fairly new. We started it in C4ML uh, last September. We spun up our own product organization, and uh, it has been it has it has been phenomenal. Uh, the impact that that product organization. The other thing that we've done is we brought in a design group. Uh, into the into this as well. So uh, this initiative is being driven by design thinking, you know, powered by product management, and uh, it's it's no longer what you might expect, like kind of in a startup in a startup mentality where you're building a proof of concept and you're kind of cobbling things together very quickly. This is pretty well thought out. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to the design thinking and how that the role that that plays in all of this? Absolutely. Um, uh, we, what we did before we started actually art, any architecture work or any kind of uh, software work. And we, we, uh, we launched some empathy interviews across the company. And what we wanted to understand were what, what were the pain points across all these different personas? So for example, as a data scientist, what are my pain points when I'm trying to do my job as a model risk officer? What are my pain points when I'm trying to do my job? As a data engineer, what do I struggle with? You know, so we went through a spectrum of personas and, um, and did these empathy interviews. And from those empathy interviews, we extracted these interesting visuals that, uh, like heat maps that, that sort of address the, you know, the challenges and, and also the gratification that people get when they do certain functions. Hmm. And, and the, the cool thing about it, it was it helped us actually sort of prioritize the feature sets that were needed for these platforms to help, uh, you know, to help address the reds, the, the, the heat map reds where people were struggling and compress the, uh, you know, the, the time it takes to get through that, that process, increasing our overall uh, velocity was really the, you know, the desired outcome there. 
but the, that, that whole design thinking and holding those, you know, these, those empathy interviews and, and, uh, and going through that process that was, that was, uh, very data driven. And, uh, it just, it was just phenomenal in terms of how it shaped our entire roadmap for our product. And then our product managers worked very closely with the, with the design people and uh, the uh, design group. And so they're able to, you know, ex- ex- take these, these heat maps and all these artifacts that come out of design thinking and turn them into product, you know, viable product roadmaps. Interesting. Is there an example of where that the heat map produced a kind of a surprising feature priority, something that you didn't, wouldn't have realized was a, a pain point for folks? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, results produced a lot of information that you sort of already knew, right? And uh-huh. they sort of validated that. But there were cases that where we didn't know, um, you know, things like, for example, we didn't realize how much the data scientists hated writing these documents for model risk, for the model risk process. Mm. They absolutely detest doing this. And, you know. It sounds <laughs> like something detestable. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what we didn't realize is how much time, you know, these people mm. were spending on these and they, they, they were referring to them as dissertations and theses, the, thesis and, you know, th- <laughs> things like that. And, and so it was, it, it was very obvious that, you know, that there was an opportunity there for automation yeah. to auto generate that documentation from the, from the artifacts of, uh, of the analysis. And we had the tech to do that. Right. So. Uh, there's no reason why why that uh, that can't be addressed. And then, likewise, on the receiver side of that, which is a model risk officer, trying to take this document and understand what this document really means without having context as to what's happened in the experiment, often required this interaction with you know with the data scientists, and that alignment had to happen, and lots of time passes by, and 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 then finally they get they get connected, and and so uh, by having by by addressing you know this this sort of handoff with a with a right technological artifact, um, you know we're we're able, we believe we're going to be able to compress that model risk that model governance process rather significantly. So that was that was just one example uh, of of something that we we didn't realize you know how much people really detested doing that. Can you give us a sense of scope for? How many data scientists exist within uh, Capital One relative to the number within your the COE? Um, just trying to, to understand the kind of the leverage that you're trying to create with the the COE, and, uh, and maybe to just tack another question onto that. One of the things that you know I see a lot of in industry is the kind of shifting away from thinking of the the data scientist as this kind of monolithic, you know, unicorn that can do everything from statistical analysis to production ready code. And you, you, you uh, are starting to see a lot more of machine learning engineers as a separate and distinct role uh, that's, that works with the data scientists as part of the, the team and, and, you know, brings more of a software engineering perspective. And I'm wondering how that plays uh, out at Capital One. So, there are data scientists within the lines of business uh, that uh, have come up through the sort of traditional ranks of, of statistical analysis and, and data science. And um, there have been transformations in those skill sets, you know, to uh, more toward understanding how to address this life cycle for machine learning. So the machine learning engineering, 
part, if you will. Mm-hmm. We have we have uh, worked very closely with our tech college organization to um, to do a couple of things. One is to provide curriculum on on uh, how to round out a data scientist to understand what that whole spectrum looks like, and also a reskilling program that we have not officially launched yet. Sort of a we developed all the content for, but to take data engineers or software engineers and to get them converted into machine learning engineers. So this reskilling program is, is, uh, is all about that within the center for machine learning. We do focus on, on bringing in machine learning engineers. So they will have a little software engineering. They will have data science. They will have DevOps, you know, um, the data engineering. And, and so they, they tend to be, they tend to cover all the entire life cycle uh, of machine learning, if you will. Uh, but as you might expect, there, there, there isn't enough supply of, of, of those types, type of people. Uh, but we are, we are seeing the lines of business actually hiring uh, this type of talent, and then, and then it becomes sort of viral. They, it's, it's contagious, and, and they're able to, you know, to, to leverage that skill set and, and teach others and, you know, and get some critical mass around the MLE. Um, we still call our machine learning engineers software engineers at, by, uh, from an organizational perspective. It's just a, kind of a legacy thing. That, that, but uh, but we, we do have, what I would say is that the concentration of machine learning engineers within the Center for, for Machine Learning is probably at par with, uh, with some of the largest uh, lines of business that, that we have. Now, they certainly uh, have many more business analysts, many more data scientists than we have mm-hmm. uh, because they have to. Uh, right. And, and as, we, as we begin to automate a lot of these processes involved in the machine learning lifecycle, these data scientists are going to be a lot more capable of doing much more um, than they have before because they won't, if they don't know how to, how to do a deployment, it's going to be push button. You know, if they, if they don't know how to access a feature set, it's, that's going to be a library call from a Python notebook. It's going to be fairly easy for them. And so uh, part of, part of our, our strategy for, you know, our, our platform, our e- ML ecosystem is to really uh, take a giant step, a step function, if you will, to make these data scientists a lot more capable while we're also teaching them the rest of the, uh, you know, the, all the other parts that uh, encompass what you need to know for machine learning engineering. Does your organization end up owning the ML ecosystem, the, the platform and responsibility for its maintenance and upkeep and all that? Or are you more defining the requirements and partnering with a, an IT or other technology organization to, you know, get it up and keep it up? Now, we're an enterprise function, so that's part of the new identity we've taken on is that we are going to own and support production systems, okay. uh, production machine learning systems. That is a, a new responsibility that, that has come into our organization, and, and uh, you know, we embrace that, and, and we look forward to, to dealing with that. Yeah, going back to the, the platform you mentioned, the feature store, feature component, and I guess this is fresh uh, in my mind because of a conversation I had yesterday, but... Uh, when uh, a data scientist or an ML engineer uh, builds a feature and contributes it to a feature store type of environment, 
there's a certain level of responsibility now for that feature. It becomes kind of a mini product in a sense, and they it limits them in the way they they evolve it potentially. There may be a, an implied support requirement. Nothing necessarily specific to features, but anytime you're trying to take advantage of reuse, there's this implied contract that comes from kind of contributing your 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 code or your feature. Uh, is that an issue that you you grapple with, and how does it play out at Capital One? Yeah, it, it, that's a, actually a very uh, very good point, and um, it's like careful what you wish for, right? Because <laughs> because there's always the flip side of something that you have to deal with. Anyone who contributes a feature to the feature um, platform is has to understand the responsibility that goes with that, and and there is a responsibility. There's a responsibility to, to to be able to field questions on that feature. There's a responsibility to stand behind the engine that calculates that feature. There's a responsibility to have gone through the governance associated with that with that feature and the use cases that it serves. And so it's a it's a much bigger deal. You can't just casually commit something back. You have to understand exactly what you're what you're doing and 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 where that accountability lies. The same thing is true with the platform. When we took that on, we had to understand that you know there may be calls at two o'clock in the morning associated with this platform. The Center for Machine Learning has never had that before. Mm-hmm. And when we when we uh, re- when we added talent to this to the Center for Machine Learning. We brought people in uh, who had production experience, enterprise platform experience, uh, because a lot of people there, you know, were machine learning engineers. Some of them fresh out of school, some of them fresh out of their PhD programs. Not many really had that that level of experience. So we had to retool, and we brought in a, a very large group to um, integrate into the Center for Machine Learning. But the mindset is is that there is an operational accountability that that we have. Um, and that anyone is going to have who contributes who contributes um, features into the feature platform. Now, if you think about our data transformation, the same thing's true there. If you manufacture data, you're you're almost in a, in the same position where you have to be able to you know you're going to put data into an ecosystem and make it available for someone else, and there has to be some level of accountability that goes with that. It it, it just can't be something that you casually contribute. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is all part of our well-managed initiative. And I, I think, you know, to, to scale machine learning across our organization to really transform banking, we, have, we understand that we're going to have to be more disciplined about how we conduct ourselves. You mentioned something interesting in there. It sounded like you brought in an organization that uh, had existing platform capability. Was this a, an, kind of an internal transfer of a team? It was. That's exactly what it was. There was a, a platform team that was in another group. And when um, when I started to have these conversations with our executive management, we knew that we had to seed uh, our talent with this other type of talent. Um, mm-hmm. And so we went and, and started to look at organizational adjustments, and we wound up integrating an entire group. And we actually did it in two ways. We brought in, brought in half the group, mm-hmm. and then we brought in the second half of the group, uh, uh, after we had built up some critical mass, and so now uh, what we've done is is we we actually have a platforms organization within the Center for Machine okay. Learning that is all about enterprise level uh, enterprise platforms. So we're talking about resilience, scalability, right. logging, you know, all, all all the things that you'd expect to see with a platform. This this team has uh, has the experience in in actually doing all those things. 
Yeah, it's a really great example of uh, something that I talk to folks about all the time. You know, what, whereas machine learning uh, and building out machine learning platforms might be new to an organization, the core kind of requirements and engineering practices probably aren't new. Capital One, for example, has, um, you know, I've known Capital One for many years to be investing heavily in platform as a service and container orchestration and all kinds of, uh, not to mention we're here at at reInvent Cloud uh, and building, you know, platforms to support traditional enterprise applications. A lot of the principles that go into supporting, you know, enterprise apps, web apps are similar to, you know, some of the things you need to be thinking about when you're supporting uh, machine learning and AI based systems. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Spot on. It's definitely my experience. One of the things that uh, you've, you've mentioned as kind of a common thread throughout the discussion is the interface with risk and governance. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, more about that process? Yeah, absolutely. I believe that um, we are actually in a very unique and interesting position at Capital One when it comes to um, the uh, governance around machine learning. We have been living in a regulated world for many, many years, uh, obviously. Uh, and with varying degrees of, of regulatory oversight, as, as I mentioned before, material models and non and immaterial models, uh, the ones that don't have to go through such high levels of regular, uh, re- regulatory scrutiny. But we understand the process and we understand all these little sort of phases and, and artifacts and, and uh, responsibilities and the laws of, of, of uh, making sure that at the end of the day we're, we are compliant you know, with the regulatory frameworks that we that we have to navigate within, and if you look at the other tech companies, uh, tech companies in general, like um, I won't mention them, but if you look at them, the scrutiny that they're facing, and they're having to rethink, you know, how how they're doing business, how they can ensure that they're not there's no bias in the data, that they can explain, you know, what's happening within their models, and uh, and that their their models aren't um, producing predictions that that uh, you know that indicate that may- maybe the algorithms aren't behaving in a way that they should or the data is influencing a different kind of behavior the data's changed we go through a very laborious process to make sure that that doesn't happen and we've been doing that the entire time uh, capital one has been around and so we know that process and now now what we're doing is we're saying you know there's so many great opportunities for us to automate and and uh, a lot of these things that, that uh, we have to do today manually. So let me give you an example. When we, when we create a model, a machine learning model, we have to go through a process to validate the, the uh, outcomes and how this model has actually performed. And one way, one of the approaches that we might take is to build what are called these surrogate validation models. And so we have to, we go in and handcraft these other models and these other models either support the, the outcomes that the model is, that you're trying to get through governance, or they might refute it. They, they might show something that's a little bit different. And then you have to write all this stuff up in a document, and you have to get that document through, and you have to defend it, and so on and so forth. Is the surrogate validation model, is that like a test suite, or is you, it, you can think of it an you can explainer think of it as a, kind of model? Or? Yeah, you can think of it as that, right? But uh, like, for example, if you're doing a gradient-boosted machine, 
you might have surrogate models that are logistic regression models, you know, that, that are something that, that, that are types of models that we've been able to linear models that we've been able to, to, uh, deal with for many, many years. And, and we can see how these two models behave with, you know, uh, against certain types of, um, data sets that they're scoring. The opportunity for us is because we know this process so well, we can actually use ML for, for governing ML. We can use natural language processing for auto, auto, auto document generation. We can use auto ML to generate those surrogate models automatically uh, and then run them, you know, and we can use interpreter. We can interpret those documents on the other side. We can double click into the validation models and surface, um, and surface the, uh, the, uh, either the, the supporting argument or, yeah. uh, for those models. And if you think about it, even beyond that, when you talk to these model risk officers, their, their minds are, I mean, the wheels are turning in their heads. They see so many opportunities for doing some really cool things. Like one of one model risk officer said to me, I'd like to have this sort of surrogate recommendation engine that's saying, Hey, I just picked up this bias in this data set and your feature set. And here's, here are the artifacts that I, that I picked up. So this thing's mm-hmm. running kind of at, alongside you, you know, and it's picking this kind of bias up and uh, recommend you make these changes or you take a look at, you know, these particular features. That's cool stuff mm-hmm. when you can actually do, if, if you could actually do something like that. So we're looking into, into piloting and, and doing some POCs around a lot of these kind of interesting, regu- you know, model governance kinds of uh, tasks. Now, I don't think we'll ever take the human out of the loop, especially for those highly regulated regulated use cases. But I think we're going to make their workload significantly less laborious. And if you think about the proliferation of machine learning models at Capital One, we don't want to just stack stack them up on the model risk officer's back door, and, and we'll be, we're in the same boat we're in today. We're just they just have a huge backlog that they have to work through. We want to give them the tools to actually get through this and we want to build, be able to build that right into our platform. And I think that's where we, we are thinking about the ideas that we're thinking about are far beyond what others are. I spent some time with uh, Amazon web service uh, executives this week. We were talking a lot about just this subject and, and they're like, Whoa, you know what? Maybe there's a way we can partner because we don't know this space. We don't know what, what you know and what you have to go through if there's a way that we might be able to have some partnership, we'd be very interested in having that discussion. So uh, I, I, I think I'm excited about that piece of it. To me, that's that's like wildly exciting because we know that so well. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe what's happening with the regulators as they're looking at machine learning, you know, just based on the conversations that I've had with them and, and that I'm seeing in, in the trade racks is that, the regular, the regulated, highly regulated models are certainly going to under, uh, undergo tremendous scrutiny. We know that, but there's this other class of models that they're starting to look at it as well, and they're saying even though the regulatory frameworks don't cover that those models, they need to be explained and interpreted and, bio, and bias detected, just mm-hmm. like just like these other models. And I think there's going to be the sentiment is going to be that all models have to go through this sort of scrutiny. And I think the tech companies are going to be facing the same thing. So what kind of advice would you give them uh, companies that don't have the, you know, the history of operating in a regulatory framework, but want to, uh, you know, either see the, they see the writing on the wall or they are internally motivated to, 
uh, use machine learning in a responsible way? How do they, you know, kind of bootstrap, you know, the the internal frameworks to to do so? There are there are some. Em- I mentioned earlier about the rate of innovation in in the industry. There are some emerging companies that are providing some libraries for some of this, some types of bias detection, you know, so there's some basic functions that you can do today with libraries in Python. Um, and, uh, and then there's companies that are springing up weekly. It seems like, you know, that are, <laughs> that are addressing uh, explainable and interpretable AI. And so I, I would say that to those companies that, that aren't looking, that are, don't have the expertise, you know, to just get, at least get savvy about um, about what's happening, and there's so much literature out there um, about this. And also, you know, if you're in the cloud with uh, AWS, AWS does have some basic capability with Shapley values that um, that you can use to to help uh, explain or interpret your models. Uh, so there's there's some there's some fundamental pieces there that mm-hmm. uh, that I, I think you know uh, people should at least become aware of. But it's certainly something you should not ignore because I, I believe that this is going to be in five years from now, this is going to be something that is expected of everything that we do with machine learning. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to be able to explain that model. And yeah. I think it's going to all be built in. Uh, well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time sure. to share what you're up to. Uh, it sounds like it continues to be uh, an interesting run and you're doing a lot of interesting things there at Capital One. I appreciate the, the opportunity to learn about it. Uh, thanks for having me, Sam. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.